Welcome to your new favorite podcast, OMELAS, with your host, Aryaman Varma. Here, Aryaman chats with religious leaders, economists, and modern philosophers to help shine a light on the dark corners of economics and religion. So, without any further ado, let's kick off this episode. Welcome to OMELAS, the podcast where we dive deep into critical global issues with leading experts. I'm your host, Aryaman Varma. And today, we're honoured to have Professor Thomas Pogge, a distinguished philosopher and advocate for global justice. As the director of the Global Justice Programme and the Leitner Professor of Philosophy and International Affairs at Yale University, he's made significant contributions to our understanding of ethics in global politics. His book, World Poverty and Human Rights, is wildly regarded as one of the most important works on global justice. Join us as we explore his insights into moral and political philosophy and discuss his groundbreaking work, on global justice. Firstly, thank you very much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Very happy to be here. Thank you. Right. To get started then, could you briefly describe your journey and background and how that has led you to where you now are? Yeah, briefly, I was born in Germany in the 1950s and grew up uh, as a very strongly pro-American person with great admiration for the United States, the music, the uh, moon landing in the 1960s or the work on the moon, the, uh, they, they were partly occupying. So there were a lot of American servicemen around. Sure. And I was deeply shocked uh, to find in the 60s, the Indochina war, you know, this incredible uh, attack on Vietnam with hundreds of thousands of people being killed by a technologically highly superior power. So that gave me a significant shock and kind of alerted me to the underside of the world, to the injustices that uh, still persist in this world. Uh, I became somewhat critical of the US, sort of uh, a little bit like a <laughs> unsuccessful love affair. Right. And decided that I wasn't going to go there. Uh, in you know, I desperately wanted to get out of Germany for a year during school time, but uh, I went to New Zealand and in New Zealand, as a high school student, did a lot of uh, protesting against the Vietnam War. The New Zealanders were involved, and so uh, I organized demonstrations down there and so on. Sure. But then I decided after a few years of study in Hamburg that I would want to go to the United States and actually understand better from the inside how Americans think about the world and why they behave the way they do, what explains their foreign policy. And uh, so I uh, did go for first a year as a visiting student and was then accepted into the graduate program and decided to stay for the PhD in philosophy. During that period, I spent a year in India, uh, not a year, I'm sorry, a summer in India. Right. And uh, saw firsthand the incredible poverty that was still prevailing there, sort of lots and lots of people not having even the very minimum of shelter, of clothing, of food. And uh, that, again, gave me this big puzzle. How is it possible in a world that is so advanced technologically and economically that so many people still live in dire poverty? So that focused me on the poverty problem and problems of global justice more generally. And I worked on my dissertation uh, trying to combine 
a philosophical interest in John Rawls, my thesis advisor, with uh, the interest in global justice and especially poverty eradication. And uh, that's still what I'm doing today. Predominantly, I work a great deal on matters of global justice and poverty. And we still live in a world in which 42% of the world's population cannot afford an adequate diet, a, a healthy diet. And we live in a world in which, despite the fact that we committed ourselves to the Millennium Development Goals and the Sustainable Development Goals, at least in the last 10 years or so, food insecurity has been on the rise, poverty has been rising, and uh, we now have 52% more people being food insecure than uh, was the case in 2014. Sure. I mean, I grew up in Mumbai, so I'm obviously um, mm -hmm. sort of witness to all of the poverty that was present. Uh, but you are evidently a, a strong supporter um, for the Health Impact Fund. So for our listeners who may not know exactly, could you elaborate the mechanics of the Health Impact Fund and um, how it balances pharmaceutical innovation with global access to medicines, as well as ensuring equality in terms of those on low and high incomes? Yeah, gladly. Uh, so the Health Impact Fund ideas is basically one of those things where which I think are important for explaining why poverty remains so widespread, why inequality has been rising. Uh, the general idea is that there are many structural features of the global economy that systematically benefit the rich and hurt the poor. And one of these features, one of these very important features are intellectual property rights. So we reward innovation with monopolies, with patents that enable innovators to claim a 20-year monopoly on the use of their innovation and allow them to charge monopoly rents from anybody who would want to use them. And uh, this way of Supporting innovation allows uh, rich innovators who have a big head start in terms of human and economic capital to claim innovations, to reach these innovations first, and then to charge road tolls of everybody else. This is particularly pernicious in the areas of green technologies and pharmaceuticals, and the Health Impact Fund is designed to show that we could reward innovations differently and thereby uh, make them much more accessible also to poor people. The sure. basic idea is to give innovators the opportunity, not an obligation, but the opportunity to exchange their monopoly rights or privileges for impact rewards that would be conditioned on the amount of health gain that is right. achieved with their pharmaceutical. So instead of getting a monopoly and selling to the rich, you get uh, impact rewards each year for 10 years that depend on the health gains achieved with your pharmaceutical. And that gives you a, an interest in spreading the usefulness of this pharmaceutical far and wide, right? The more patients you can help and the more you can help them with your innovation, the more money you get. Sure. Uh, the addition is that you give up your monopoly privileges, so the medicine is sold at cost. Essentially, you make no money from marking up the price of the medicine. Right. You make all your money from improving the health of people and being rewarded in proportion to that. 
Right. Yeah, I think uh, eradicating sort of the monopoly power, especially in the pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical industry, is is obviously extremely important. But with the health impact fund, one criticism that it attracted uh, was that it didn't require open licensing of registered drugs. Um, and oh, I mean, another sort of less, perhaps weaker point was uh, simply just the opportunity cost uh, is too high. I mean, how would you respond to these two criticisms? Yeah, so let's look at the first one. There are different ways of ensuring that the medicines that are rewarded through the Health Impact Fund are actually sold at a very low price. Uh, one way of ensuring that is to require open licensing, as you say. You know, you basically innovate, you invent this medicine, and then anybody who wants to can copy it and can sell it. And competing sellers will drive the price down. Right. But that has disadvantages in that, for example, the innovator is losing control of distribution. The quality of the product may not be all that great. And in particular, the innovator doesn't really uh, have the ability then to find a strategy of optimal distribution of the medicine that ensures that you tackle the disease at the population level. So let me explain what I would propose instead. What I would propose is a system where competing producers or manufacturers of the product would uh, tender to the innovator and would say, look, we could produce large quantities of the product at such and such a price. The innovator would then have the choice to uh, choose from among these manufacturers, pick the manufacturer who's offering the lowest cost reliable supply and right. give the contract to that manufacturer, let that manufacturer or probably two or three just to have better safety that we really make sure that the supply is there, let them produce it. And the innovator would remain in charge of the distribution and could organize the distribution in such a way that you really contain and suppress the target disease. Right. This would actually be, you know, you would use the same principle of competition among manufacturers to drive the price down, but you would in fact achieve even greater economies of scale. Rather than having 50 manufacturers around the world producing the product, you would have two or three producing much larger quantities of the product and thereby being able to produce even more cheaply because they would have the economies of scale. Sure, sure, sure. And how would you... Yeah, the second question about uh, opportunity cost, right? Yeah. And here, of course, uh, you have to ask yourself, what else would you want to fund, right? Uh, one thing that we are now funding with billions of dollars is the Global Fund, uh, a very good organization that in particular is helping poor countries afford medicines that are no longer under patents. Uh, most of the medicines that they ship around the world are non-patented medicines. Now, the a health impact fund would, I think, be a very good complement to the global fund because it would allow the global fund to distribute medicines that are under patent, are still in the first 20 years on the market, but they would now suddenly be affordable and you could ship them in large quantities, really use them because they would be so much cheaper than they are under the current system. 
So I think that uh, the health impact fund would be as efficient or would make the global fund much more efficient and would itself be very highly efficient in promoting health by making those recently discovered medicines widely available from the start, which, by the way, also gives us the best opportunity in the case of infectious diseases to really eradicate that disease, right? Because what happens now is that during the first 20 years that a medicine is available, it reaches only the rich. And during those 20 years, drug resistance builds up and the crucial opportunity to really eradicate the disease is typically lost. Right. I think, yeah, I think you make an interesting point about it being a good complement to the global fund. Um, I think, yeah, I I do think that works quite well. Uh, But, you know, so in World Poverty and Human Rights, your book, of course, you propose that Western liberal democracies are currently harming the world's poor. And obviously, leaving aside, you know, the corruption and the domestic kleptocrats, how do international institutions facilitate and exacerbate the corruption perpetuated by national institutions? Yeah, so uh, they do much more than that, of course, uh, as we just saw in the example of intellectual property rights. But one thing that international institutions certainly do, the way we structure the world economy, is uh, they facilitate uh, corruption and uh, kleptocracy and so forth. Now, they do that in various ways. One is that the people running the IMF and the World Bank, mainly representatives of the major powers, insist that anti-corruption concerns be subordinated to geopolitical priorities. So very often uh, rulers or governments that are friendly to the major powers running these financial institutions are supported by these institutions because they have the right geopolitical orientation, they are anti-communist, they don't support the Chinese, things like that, even if they are very corrupt and exploit the local population. Another thing is that we maintain, we being the dominant Western powers, maintain a global system of tax havens, a global haven infrastructure, that facilitates the hiding of money. We do that largely in the service of our corporations, allowing them to avoid paying taxes in developing countries. But uh, that same infrastructure is then used by corrupt officials in developing countries the world over to uh, hide their ill-gotten gains, the money that they've stolen. A further problem uh, that also facilitates corruption is that we assign to any person or group that exercises effective power in a country the privileges of selling the natural resources of that country and also to borrow in the name of the whole country, regardless of how that person or group may have come to power and regardless of how they exercise it. That, again, provides very powerful incentives for armed groups to take power by force because they can then avail themselves of this income and can use it to keep themselves in power indefinitely. And so it's not surprising that uh, we find that in most of the resource-rich countries, highly undemocratic, oppressive regimes take power, 
and maintain themselves in power simply by uh, using these resource and borrowing privileges. Sure. And to extend your argument, uh, let's take the WTO, for example, which obviously is you know funded through annual budgets, but those annual budgets are coming from major Western countries such as America. So how would you propose that the WTO was sort of run in a, in a in a way to make it more fair for countries that cannot sort of have as much of a say in in terms of the financial funding side of things yeah i think democratization would be extremely helpful here uh, the wto is formally speaking democratic it works by consensus uh, the imf and the world bank do not they have very skewed voting rights but the problem, of course, is the economic power, right? That sure. uh, a small country like Cameroon, for example, uh, lacks uh, the bargaining power to stand up to the big guys. And it exactly. also lacks the expertise. That is a, a, an important thing where we could really make a difference. You know, if we had committed academics that would be willing to lend uh, their expertise to the weaker powers and to think really hard about how particular uh, treaties or particular conventions that are adopted within the WTO and uh, in bilateral and multilateral treaties like NAFTA, for example, or its successor, uh, how they affect the poor, uh, we would already be a big step forward. Uh, in the case of the WTO, when the, it was founded in the Uruguay round negotiations, uh, the uh, smaller countries were simply outgunned in terms of expertise and they signed up to something that they barely understood and are now uh, essentially stuck with it. And as a condition of being uh, getting this most favored nation status and being part of the World Trade Organization, they had to make tremendously costly concessions, costly maybe not so much for the elites of those countries, but costly for the large majority of their populations. Right. And how do you suggest the international community as a whole uh, addresses the resource and borrowing privileges that, sort of as you argue and propose, uh, right. increase poverty in developing countries? Yeah, the, the general solution is quite obvious. The general solution has to be that whenever loans are taken out by poor countries and whenever resources of these poor countries are sold, natural resources, uh, there has to be a condition imposed. The condition is that these contracts are democratically legitimated. They are uh, made really in behalf of the population and in the best interests of the population. So that has to be checked. It can't be some dictator whose only claim to speak for the nation consists in the fact that he has just machine gunned his way into the presidential palace of that country. Now, how can we assure that? Uh, we don't want Western powers to sit in judgment over whether a particular government in the global South is legitimate or not. Ideally, what we want is a Southern uh, association of states that would have an expert committee and a decision-making mechanism that would decide whether a particular government in the global South is sufficiently representative of the people and their interest to be able to be 
recognized worldwide as entitled to make these kinds of contracts about resource sales or loans. Sure. And uh, on a sort of <laughs> equally pressing issue, which is obviously sort of contributing to the poverty in the world, um, environmental degradation. I mean, how do you see the relationship between global poverty and the environmental crisis um, that we are currently going through? And again, uh, what role do systemic injustices play in both um, issues? Yeah, so this is another one of these very, very clear cases where uh, my fundamental claim that we are not just helping too little but harming too much is quite visible, right? We are uh, creating an enormous amount of environmental harm in other countries, and we don't do anything to compensate for these harms. We are ruining uh, the climate, the natural environment of these countries uh, through heat, through rising sea levels, salination of groundwater, air pollution, and all the rest. And uh, we are refusing to compensate for that. So this obviously contributes massively to impoverishment of the world's poorer populations, especially those in the tropics and uh, contributes to their lower life expectancy, which is typically 20, 30 years uh, shorter than ours, and to the fact that they continue to live in poverty. And here, uh, both these phenomena, the environmental harm and its continuation, and also the impoverishment of the global south and its persistence, are driven by the disenfranchisement of the global poor and they're being dominated in international politics. They're having essentially no say, no voice, no role in deciding how our world is structured politically and in particular economically. And that in turn is perpetuated by the fact that uh, the international politics is by and large continues to be a competition over military and economic power. And those who have military and economic power set the terms and, of course, do so in their own interest. Nobody is particularly hating the poor, but everybody loves themselves more and is using what military or economic power they have to bend the terms of international cooperation in their own favor. Right. Yeah, I think the sort of relationship between the environmental issues that we're facing and global poverty is obviously a negative one. Um, but just going back to the Health Impact Fund for a second, um, mm -hmm. obviously you'd mentioned that having two or three main manufacturing companies instead of having 50 um, would lead to obviously great efficiency and um, the benefiting from economies of scale. But do you not think that could potentially um, reduce innovation uh, and incentive um, for people to come up with um, sort of different variants or, you know, et cetera? Yeah, I, I don't think so, because uh, what we are talking about here are the manufacturing companies, right? There are there's essentially a, a division of labor. There are companies that are innovators that are doing research, biomedical research on new uh, drug development. And then there is a much larger uh, number of companies that are producing, mass producing uh, the resulting medically effective molecules. 
So I was talking about the latter in this context, right? They they would be they stand ready to uh, mass produce the developed medicines relatively cheaply and in competition with each other. Uh, the incentives for developing new medicines that you are rightly concerned about would be enhanced by the Health Impact Fund proposal. That would happen because all the old incentives remain in place. So if you want to develop a new cancer drug and then exploit your monopoly privileges that you get as a reward for developing it, you can continue to do so. But you have an additional opportunity to make money through the Health Impact Fund, for example, by developing a medicine that is particularly indicated for poor people. So let's take malaria, for example. There's very little research now on malaria, on schistosomiasis, on all the diseases of poverty, because even if you develop a very effective medicine for any one of those diseases, you cannot sell them at monopoly prices because the people who have these diseases sure. are poor. Sure. With the Health Impact Fund, you have a whole new set of incentives uh, for innovators to go after these uh, diseases that blighten the, the life of the poor. And so I think incentives to do research on developing new pharmaceuticals would be enhanced and increased by the broadened by the Health Impact Fund. Sure. And uh, so that, moving on a little bit, um, obviously, John Rawls uh, has had a, a major influence um, on your work. And um, how would you develop his principles, um, applying them to reform current global institutions? And what would you say would be the primary targets for such reform? Yeah, so I would develop them in a way that is uh, contrary to what Rawls himself has laid down <laughs> law of peoples, I would say that uh, if uh, the two principles of justice that Rawls has formulated are the right principles, or at least uh, one solution to the question of how a self-contained society uh, might justly be organized, then why not the world? Why not apply these principles to the world and say, how? what would the world look like in which we try to realize Rawls's two principles. The first thing we would then do is realize human rights worldwide. That would be the first priority, first principle of justice. Make sure that everybody the world over has their fundamental human rights fulfilled, including social and economic human rights, which in his book, Political Liberalism, uh, Rawls said should be either included in the first principle or even given a higher rank than the first principle, the very basic needs. Then the second uh, priority would be fair equality of opportunity, according to Rawls, right? And here right. again, live in a world in which the opportunities that people have are very heavily determined by their country of birth. About 60% is country of birth, and 20% is uh, the class into which you're born within your country. And this is just far too great, right? We should try to reduce that and make sure that people's uh, success in life depends on what they actually have control over, their own effort, their own motivation, how much good they do to society, and not by such totally undeserved factors as the country of a person's birth. 
So there are many ways of doing that, but the best way of doing that is to equalize per capita income across the world. Now we have uh, discrepancies of more than 100 to 1. The richest countries have GNP per capita well above 100,000, the poorest well below 1,000. Right. And that is just extreme, right? It's absurd that half the world's population live on less than one-tenth of the global average income. Nobody should live on less than a tenth of the global average income. And this brings me to the third priority, the, the difference principle. We say, and uh, this is, again, Rawls's idea, that in an economic system, we assess it by how well the people in the lowest socioeconomic position are doing relative to how well they might be doing if the system were optimally organized. And here, again, the global poor are vastly worse off than anybody needs to be if we organize the world economy in a rational way. Sure. And um, from a very fundamental um, sort of point of view, um, Rawls's veil of ignorance is, to an extent, like a moral ideal. But is it realistic do you think it's practical? Do you think it would work in the world? Well, uh, it would work in the world uh, if we ever reached it, right? It, it, when you say, would it work in the world? That can mean two things. It can mean, is it practicable? It's absolutely practicable. And the most advanced societies in the world that we know of, including you know several European societies, show that we can do it with large numbers of people. Obviously, we could do it on a global level as well. Uh, the big question is, can we get there from where we are? Exactly. And that is the the great challenge. Uh, it, of course, would require that countries that now uh, exercise vastly more power than their population numbers would really entitle them to, like, for example, the United States, 4% of the world's population, 50% of the world's power, especially yeah. military power, they, they couldn't retain that, of course. They would be reduced in terms of influence and power. And uh, that is something that uh, they and certainly their privileged citizens uh, are not particularly happy to contemplate. So they uh, tend to resist that. And here uh, the question is, is it possible gently to reduce their economic power to the point where at the very least we get three, four, five percent of the world's income shifted in such a way that at least we eradicate poverty, right? We don't have to reduce the U.S. economic share to 4% or anything like that. Right. But can we reduce it a little bit, and that of the Europeans and that of other rich countries, a little bit to the point where at least everybody in the world has enough to eat? Sure. And from a personal point of view, um, do you think banning billionaires would be helpful because, you know, popular economist Piketty, Thomas Piketty, um, his sort of proposed tax plan, which is like a, a graduated wealth tax of 5% on those worth more than 2 million and 90% on those worth more than 2 billion, essentially just taxes billionaires out of existence. So what's your sort of opinion on that debate? Yeah, it, it would definitely be helpful. But again, the question is the question that you very rightly pose, namely, can we get there from where we are, right? If you propose a billionaire's tax, 
you immediately mobilize the combined resistance of the billionaires. Uh, a few billionaires may be on your side very visibly, but the vast majority of billionaires <laughs> is going to be very upset and very angry. They're going to say, no way, right? Are we going to uh, have ourselves be taxed? And those guys have a lot of political clout, right? Do you really think that this is the best first fight to pick? Maybe not. And I've thought about this very long and very hard. You know, what is a good first fight to pick? In the long run, maybe yes, that's exactly what we want. But a good first fight to pick, I think, is intellectual property rights. Because the right. existing intellectual property rights system, the existing system of rewarding intellectual property rights with monopoly rents, is not only deeply immoral and unjust, it's also damn stupid. And let me explain why. Uh, take again pharmaceuticals, right? With infectious diseases such as COVID-19 and so on, we want these diseases to be eradicated. But we cannot eradicate diseases if we do not include poor populations in a population-level strategy of disease eradication. If we ignore the poor, the disease is going to proliferate among the poor, and it's going to breed out new variants. It's going to breed out drug resistance against whatever drugs we may throw at it. And in the end, these diseases persist. Humanity in all its history has only eradicated a single disease. That is smallpox. So we can do it, but we cannot do it with the stupid monopoly system that we now have. So a health impact fund-like system would be very advantageous, not only for the poor, for the reasons that we discussed before, but it would be very advantageous for everybody by protecting us much better against diseases. Second sure, example. Sorry, uh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, green technologies. So with green technologies too, we have fantastic new green technologies, but we have a lot of patents embedded in them and all these patent owners want to be paid uh, monopoly rents for consenting to have their innovation used. And so green technologies are underutilized because they are more expensive than their dirty competitors because of all these patents embedded in them. That again is very stupid. The, we all suffer from climate change. We all suffer from air pollution. And it would be much, much better if green technologies were available at competitive market prices and if the innovators of green technologies were paid differently, namely through a kind of ecological impact fund where they get paid in proportion to the emission reduction, pollution reduction that is achieved with the help of their innovation rather than through monopoly rents. Sure. I, I mean, you mentioned that everyone wants to get rid of you know the disease for example like COVID-19 but do the pharmaceutical industries want to get rid of it that quickly or do they want to they want to get rid of it but surely not as quickly as everyone else excellent question right but uh, remember this the pharmaceutical companies under the present system of course they benefit from the disease surviving and that is why the disease survives sure but I'm stepping one step back and I'm saying, do we really want to create a system under which the pharmaceutical companies have that incentive, the incentive to help the rich, but to make sure the disease survives? No, we don't. Everybody is better off if we incentivize pharmaceutical companies in such a way 
that they themselves have a strong financial interest in the complete eradication of the disease. That's what the Health Impact Fund does. The Health Impact Fund says, look, to pharmaceutical companies, if you want to win the jackpot, you eradicate the disease. The greatest health gain, the greatest health impact that you could ever have with your medicine is when you eradicate the disease and no one can possibly get sick from it anymore. That is the best for humanity, and that is going to be the highest possible reward that you could ever earn. That way, we would get the pharmaceutical companies themselves on our side. They would now want to say, I want to earn that jackpot. I want to make it the case that my medicine actually eradicates the disease completely. Sure. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us on the Omelas podcast. It was a privilege to have Professor Thomas Pogi with us today, sharing his profound thoughts and expertise on moral and political philosophy and the quest for global justice. His perspectives, particularly on the Health Impact Fund, which I find quite convincing and beneficial, uh, offer us much to ponder in our ongoing dialogue about ethics and international affairs. For more episodes and discussions with leading thinkers, please do subscribe to our podcast. Until next time, I'm Aramon Varma, your host. Keep engaging with ideas that shape our world. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Omelas Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Once again, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.